right, everybody. Welcome back to the Unlisted Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him. And I guess then to William, he, him. And Michael, he, him. How are you guys doing? Pretty well. Good. I guess we're going to attempt to do another uh, debate episode. I appreciate you guys coming on. I just randomly selected you guys out of all like the chat requests mm-hmm. that I got. And what I had requested in the original post was to come and defend capitalism. And I said a bunch of like, I don't think they're extravagant things, but they sound like outlandish to people who are just kind of used to the Western framing of capitalism is the best possible system or whatever. It's like, I said a bunch of shit, basically like the US is the most deadly empire. Capitalism is going to just end humanity if left unchecked. But uh, yeah, I told people to just come on and defend capitalism. So here we are. I want to start off, I guess, let me just ask you, uh, William, you can go first and then we'll go with you, Michael, after that. But if you guys want to just lay out sort of where you guys put yourselves politically, use the spectrum if you want or uh, however you want to describe it. Right. So I don't like putting myself on a certain area of a political spectrum, mainly just because of uh, every part of the political spectrum has its own nasty little uh, vocal minority and its own nasty connotations. Right. So that considered, I can quite confidently align myself with libertarianism, although mostly like a Rothbardian libertarianism, I guess. Modern libertarianism has kind of shifted away from that a little bit but mainly the ethical standpoint of libertarianism, that being uh, conflict avoidance and the importance of a human ethic. I guess economically, if if we are to draw a hard distinction between the two, economically, uh, aside from just uh, what's the laissez-faire economics, Mm -hmm. I also believe uh, in Austrian economics and that that the best way to perform economics is to build from the ground up through a priori arguments using like logical axioms, right? Yeah, that's more or less where I align myself. Although, to be completely honest, a lot of the other people or a lot of the uh, thinkers that I've read about in this area of the political spectrum, I'm not so sure I agree with the actual statements that they make. Like, we have the same framework, but it kind of branches off in different areas. Like, I'm not sure exactly how or why people like uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe are so, like, provocative in what they do or how Rothbard kind of just tries to pick fights with everybody he possibly can, right? And is very inflammatory in his writing. Or Oh, okay. So I misinterpreted what you were saying. I was like, I was like, he doesn't think that Hoppe is provocative and I see what you're saying. Oh, no, yeah, no, he's, he's out there. Especially his public statements, not just his writings, but mm-hmm. his uh, public statements. It's uh, kind of weird, especially his stuff about like closed borders, about essentially creating a monarchical ethnostate. I, I've, I'm not sure how he comes to that conclusion using free market principles, but like, I guess he says that, but like, I'm going to say that now. I don't think that's the course that capitalism would take. And I think there are many good reasons why it wouldn't. He's probably better at me. Uh, he's, be- he's probably better at it than me. So maybe he's right. But I don't know. Using uh, free market principles, I think there's much more reasonable conclusions to come to than de facto monarchies, right? Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let's get Michael to go ahead and uh, describe where he lands on the spectrum or the compass or whatever. However you like to describe Michael, go ahead. Um, yes, I guess I would just say I'm a supporter of well-regulated capitalism. Um, I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as libertarian. Like, I don't subscribe to the beliefs of Frederick, people like Frederick Hayek, of Ludwig von Mises, and I, like, I don't agree with, like, the non-aggression principle. Um, but I, I just believe that capitalism is better than socialism and communism. Um, and I think the only problem with it is that it's not regulated enough. So that's kind of where I stand. An interesting take. But to me, regulations themselves are inherently socialist communist, aren't they? Um, 
Well, how would you define socialism and communism? Well, uh, social communism, you know, without using the uh, the ultra blanket, no government, no money, you know, it's just simply democracy is communism. It's simply the rule of the majority, and the rule of the majority is inherently regulatory. I mean, if I want, if I want to give like the thirty second definition of communism, socialism, it's like communism is the complete democratic control of the means of production, and you know class structure abolished and you know all that good stuff like the what do you call it the is the contradiction the class conflict abolished and then socialism is all the transition states to that and then varying degrees of that exist and have existed and um i think like when you were describing michael your advocacy of like well-regulated capitalism it's like it just made, uh, what i'm gonna advocate for a lot is china's model currently and what they i guess at least if we take them at what they're saying what they intend to do um, the whole socialism by 2050 or whatever. I like this episode recently that I listened to by this economist, Michael Hudson. And he was just basically saying that China's current model is closer to Marx's vision of socialism than anything else that we have, because they do have markets on a small scale. Like they will have just small businesses and like markets at the local level that control prices and everything that actually do work. So it's like not, they don't have to control prices of, you know, fish at the local market at a national level. They let markets do that. But then when it comes to big things like energy across the country or public transportation or whatever, like they're more than willing to execute a billionaire or at least punish them. Whereas in the U.S., we could only dream of that. And I fucking love it for one. So, but I mean, you guys can respond to that however you'd like. Uh-huh. Um, so, so you're sort of saying like regulated ca- capitalism is like socialism in a sense um, because people are voting for po- politicians um, that will put in place um, regulations on businesses. I think the the Chinese model, like the, the whole thing about socialism with Chinese characteristics, is that their government is set up like it, it's odd to me. Like the more I look into different socialist states and see how the governments are set up, like we did kind of an in depth analysis on Cuba at one point when we did our episodes on them, but they all have these similar structures of like community councils. Like all the citizens go and meet at the local level, they pitch ideas, and then these get voted on. And depending on how popular they are, they just keep going up the ladder. And you yep. could pitch something at the local level that would go all the way up to the national level if it is popular enough. It just actually is democratic that way. And then they explicitly limit the influence that business and that business owners and money in general have on this political structure of theirs. And that's why they are able to regulate billionaires. And that's why you see all these uh, horrific sounding articles, like these really scary headlines about what China is doing to billionaires or to businesses or like how they're crushing and all these regulations and stifling this or that and everything. It's like, that's because you're, you're reading like capitalist media and to them, that is, that's fucking terrifying. So that is like the, the model that we would push for because what I was getting at when I started that is that like the U S actually has very similar structures of governance. Like there are local governments and you ostensibly have the ability to get your ideas into the local level government all the way up to the federal level. If you just, I don't know, are really that charismatic, but like, we all know how politics works here and how much money is involved. And it's like, I don't know. I don't think I know anyone. I, like I've met a couple politicians at like small and like intermediate levels in my life. And I know people who have met politicians. It's like, they're not good people. Like they're weird. That's, they're weird, right? Like, have you ever met any person? Like they're fucking slimy and weird. It's like, I don't, I don't think that's a good system that encourages those people. But I mean, you guys can, again, go ahead, respond however you like. On the politician thing. So I've also met a few politicians and just in watching, you know, various politicians on TV, Internet, etc. I never get the feeling of this person is truly an intellectual. I get the feeling of this is 
a good talker. Like I, I bet he did really well in debate class in school. Like, you know, I, I bet yeah, he, definitely. you know, fucked the, the captain of the cheerleader <laughs> team. Like I, I bet this dude, you know, got down, like no doubts about it, but is he someone I trust with the economic structure of the future of my country and my children? I don't yeah. have children, but hypothetical children. I've never got that vibe from a politician. It just seems like a system that inherently rewards the worst among us. And that uh -huh. kind of is also what I feel for capitalism in general. Mm -hmm. That is astonishingly interesting. That's you. Okay. Just as a kind of a prefix, a little bit of a joke. Um, yeah. I remember talking with some of my friends about the super alt-right Austrian economics versus the uh, communist economics I learned about in a so sociology class. I, I kind of made fun of that class. It was a bit of a laughing stock for my friend group. But anyway, I was comparing the two and I was like, wait, there's, there's some parallels here. But why does it seem like there's so many parallels between these two? They should be literal polar opposites, right? And hearing you mention that about how politicians always seem slimy and whatnot, Papa's one of his famous quotes is that democracy is a system that ensures intelligent criminals rise to the top. It is essentially insurance that the worst smart people get to the top, which you attribute to capitalism, which is just so interesting that this parallel exists between uh, the two. Yeah, I was going to add an asterisk to that and just say under capitalism, democracy does that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing we should approach. I feel like I should write that down. But yeah, that, that's a, a whole can of worms we should delve into soon. Uh, one thing I have to ask about uh, China's system of um, mix between capitalism and socialism or uh, capitalism and a democratic, uh, a democratically managed means of uh, production is that in general, democracy is thought to work on a smaller scale better than a larger scale, while capitalism is generally seem to work on a larger scale better than a smaller scale. So the system of applying socialism to manage large services like energy while leaving fish to capitalism seems a little counterintuitive for that. And the reason why capitalism works for a larger scale while socialism works for a smaller scale is because democracy, it is, you can view it. So, okay, a thing with Austrian economics that might be a downfall of it that I usually run by is methodological individualism, which basically means that you try to approach every problem as though you are an individual in there and everybody is thinking their own rational thoughts and acting in a, a rational way, right? So democracy on a large scale kind of leads to rational ignorance, where voters have the option to study really hard, get great ideas, and then try to push these to Congress or push these up the uh, political ladder. And while voting, they can also vote intelligently and study hard, right? Or they could not, right? And, and when there's millions of people voting, your vote has a proportionally small impact no matter how much you study for it. So... From the standpoint, any individual might say, okay, I could study for this ballot or I could just, oh yeah, he got red tie, let's check him off, right? So in general, if you view this from an individualist standpoint, the incentives don't quite line up to vote intelligently. Yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying. Um, and I've made similar arguments in the past on different subjects. But to me, that's not a downfall of democracy. That's a downfall of the country that is quote-unquote democratic i mean for instance how many voters in this country just vote for whatever cnn or fox news tell them to vote for that's practically the majority of your voters are just going to do what those two media stations tell them to do 
So if the large majority of your voting population is more or less controlled by a handful of media organizations, then the question is, are those media organizations doing what they need to educate their voters? Instead of just going on TV and saying, you need to vote for him because that person's scary, that person's letting criminals jump over a border, or that person's going to, you know, drag women out of clinics who want abortions, X, Y, Z. It's fear-mongering, and they're, they're trying to demonize the opposition so that they don't have to actually talk for their candidate. Because it's this whole theory of lesser of two evils. So let me explain exactly how evil this person is. So then I really don't even need to touch on mine because I don't even have to pretend he's a good guy anymore. He's just not that guy. And that was, ask Democrats why they voted for Trump. He wasn't Trump. That's why. That was their answer. So it's like, that is literally how our voting is here in America. It doesn't have to be. The news organizations really could go on TV and explain to you exactly how these various uh, economic systems and policies work, how they could work, how they could be better, what other people have ideas of. There are plenty of things they could do, but they don't. And in fact, not only do they not, the commercial breaks between them seem to be primarily businesses that benefit from them not. And I'm not sure how to connect those dots besides blaming capitalism. <laughs> Michael had something. So um, you say you didn't know how to connect those dots other than to blame capitalism? Yes. Um, so is, how do you think um, something like socialism or communism will fix that? Yeah, I mean, it, it largely has. I mean, if you look at other socialist countries that have existed and their take on educating their... Uh, like, like which countries specifically? Like, you know, in the in the USSR, obviously, they didn't have huge Fox News and CNN. Most of their, you know, if you were going to elect a local Soviet, that was someone who actually was from your community. And most times or spent a lot of time in your community. They took to a local stage. They spent time with the community. They talked to the community one on one. That local so- Soviet takes his position. That local Soviet votes above him for the, you know, the position above him. And it. it the Soviet system itself is not truly democratic. And a lot of even Stalin has explained that, you know, it's it's a large portion of centralism. And even Stalin was a little against the centralism of it. He, he didn't like some of the centralist control that he grew up under when he lived in Georgia. And that's why it was very important to him that even Georgia had a, a, a sense of autonomy, even underneath the Soviet Union. And, and he wanted to continue that with a lot of the other satellite states. But my point being is, He also understood that, especially in times of war and in in times of uh, other isms wanting to invade and control your country, there was a level of centralism that had to at least be established at that point and hopefully at some point removed, you know, hopefully a weaning off of it. But even then, even with those heavy levels of centralism, you at least had politicians at the local level who were in your community discussing these ideas with you face to face actually the ideas and you were voting on them and they were taking a position locally. And then if that was someone you trusted and you elected them to that position, they then took their uh, knowledge and, you know, their beliefs that you stood behind and they voted on the person above them. They voted on the ideas behind them. In fact, if they cast a vote and especially under Stalin under the, uh, the 36 constitution, they had to make public what they voted beforehand. They actually didn't. But now they could technically vote against the will of the people. So under the 36th Constitution, everyone also got to vote on a lot of policies. 
Like literally imagine just you getting handed a ballot of policies that were going to go into play and you get to vote on them personally, not even as a Soviet, just living in your home. You get a ballot with actual policies that you go do your research on and you can vote on those policies. You could talk to your neighbors about them and y'all vote on them collectively. Now the Soviet could vote against that. However, if they did, they have, they had to explain why publicly they would hold a, a meeting and explain this is what I voted for. Here's why I did it. Uh-huh. The people then could immediately remove that Soviet from power and vote on a new one if they disagreed with him voting against them. Now, is that perfect democracy? No, but it sure sounds more ideal than what we have here. I have a response as well, but I don't know if you want to listen to mine. But like, I would like to hear you guys go ahead to uh, respond to that as well. Um, yeah. So to go back to this idea about like these people were more in touch with their public leaders and their public politicians that they could just ask them about policy and stuff like that. And they were more well-informed as opposed to someone in the modern age voting today. Couldn't you also make the argument that the USSR also had propaganda um, that could have been seen as like what Fox News or CNN is today? Yeah, absolutely. Every, every country in history has had levels of propaganda. Was there propaganda in the USSR that you know, blatantly made it out to be that the USSR was better than every other country. Yes, there was even some very, uh, some very not okay propaganda even within the USSR. There, and that's one thing on the left that we strive for is critical support. You know, there are a lot of things about the Soviet Union. There are a lot of things about China that I disagree with. However, I can offer critical support like the, uh, the DPRK. I am critically in support of the DPRK. They are in incredibly democratic. Now, do I believe that their people receive enough information for their votes to truly be uh, unbiased? Absolutely not. But that's to say, so if, if the people in the DPRK had the internet and were doing research on their own, would they probably vote differently? Sure. But do they vote to not do that and not to allow internet into their country? They do democratically and vote against it. So it's like, it is democracy. It's weird. It's against the grain. It's not something I'd probably be comfortable with, but that's kind of the point of democracy, you know, and, and it's kind of you, you definitely have those kind of issues that can take hold. And what I hope that they would open themselves up. Yes. And I, I'll say yes, but I'd also say that I understand their hesitance when they look at the outside world. And I think a lot of people in the USSR looked at the outside world and was like, that's fucking crazy. What's going on out there is nuts. Our country's the greatest. Kazakhstan theme song playing in the background. And, and they, just, they were just proud of their country and wanted to, wanted to put that out there. And yes, the government took a role in that. I'm not disagreeing. William, did you have something? Because I was going to say some things, but I'd like to hear if you do first. Yeah, I, I want to add something. So from the standpoint of each individual just getting a book of policies and voting on them, Remember what I mentioned about uh, rational ignorance, how each individual might not really want to put in the like 40 hours necessary to learn economics to vote as to whether or not they should produce 10% more grain versus 10% more pork or something, right? Yeah. These types of decisions require massive amounts of information. And it's really, really, really difficult to both incentivize people to make, to do the research and make the right decisions while also making their votes like matter enough to make a difference, right? Yeah, they, they did, though. I mean, their, their voters did, you know, educate themselves. Now, did they go as far as what I was describing? Uh, the average voter, probably not. But I would say their average voter was more engaged 
with learning about what they were voting for than ours. And it's probably largely because we don't see immediate impacts of our voting. Like their, their system, their political system goes much lower to ours. Yes, precisely. That, that's the point I was trying to get to. Yeah, is yeah. that when you bring the political system onto a smaller scale, democracy works better because you know everybody, you have a community to talk with, your local representative can live like a couple blocks down, right? It certainly works better. I agree there. It, it, it does. On a, on a smaller system, it works vastly better. But what I believe is that when you scale it up, the whole game theory, the whole market failure that I'm trying to highlight right. becomes a worse and worse problem. So, and naturally, the, the world is scaling up, right? So I think as a system, democracy doesn't scale as well as uh, capitalism for making these types of large-scale financial decisions. To answer kind of several things that you're, several points that you're making, William, I think that when you have, I th- a lot of these arguments that you're making were much easier to make 30 years ago, for sure. And even 10 or 20 years ago, I think, especially in the, in the early 90s, right after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and everything, you know, the USSR is done for, yeah, you can definitely make this, the case that capitalism is the only way to go forward and socialism just simply does not work. But now in 2022, it's much more difficult. Like, I think even despite like the lifetime of indoctrination, I think a lot of people are starting to see that like China's building like railway systems across our entire country and like stations overnight. Yeah, it's like ridiculous. And they just give, give all their citizens universal health care. And like, I mean, I think this is where we can get into nitty gritty things. But it's like if you look into the the uh, with the details of like what articles are saying about their oppressive COVID policies, that it's like today the headline is that the CDC no longer recommends that kids quarantine after COVID exposure from school. They don't require they don't they don't think that kids should test or quarantine or anything after being exposed to COVID. This is like just the headline on Reuters today. So it's like those are two very different approaches to me where it's like one. I would argue clearly puts people above profits and just like keeping the machine going. And then the U.S. is the exact opposite. And I think that that is the solution to having a bad democracy where people make uninformed decisions. I think having good education, whereas the U.S. has been on a steady track of dismantling its public education system, it is now talking about doing that in an even more serious way as the solution to mass shootings somehow, which is, again, just absolutely insane to me. And this is kind of where I just posit the whole thing to everyone that I call liberals, which includes conservatives, which includes people on the right, anyone who agrees with capitalism, I'm just posing it to you guys. And this was my post was just come and defend it. And please tell me the story of how the US and really any capitalist country, because I think the UK, all the Western capitalist countries fall into the same category. They're all going in the direction of privatization and they're throwing labor overboard, just like throwing labor under the bus. And I would like to hear Anyone tell me the story of how it reverses those trends of the last 50 years and starts working for working people, especially in the face of like increased natural disasters and weather events? I just wanted to add an optional addendum to that uh, question, which is to preface with what you consider success of a government and an economic system. So if you're explaining why capitalism is better than socialism, explain what success is measured by in your eyes or what it should be measured by? That is a wonderful question. So success is hilariously difficult to measure, naturally. Anything from education to starvation rates to violence, things like this, there, there are so many different ways to measure it. Obviously, GDP isn't, isn't a good way to measure it. Obviously, things like voter turnout is not a good way to measure it. There, there are countless ways to measure it, right? But generally, which is, this is a bit funny, right? But 
a, a pretty good way to measure how successful a country is, is how much it trades with other countries, I think. So again, that sounds a little self, a little bit of a circle jerk, dare I say, right? A little. Because naturally capitalism will be more open to trade than uh, central planning. But I think from, uh, from the standpoint of, from, from a nationwide standpoint, which I kind of don't want to go down because I'm more of on the uh, anarcho-capitalist side than the uh, classical liberal side, but if a, you could think of it as a large community, the amount a large community is able to produce and coordinate with other large communities to fill gaps in another nation's, let's say, right? If this, if this nation is able to coordinate trade with them, fill gaps with each other's strengths and weaknesses, and actually provide services for each other, provide products, and interact in a coordinated fashion, I think that's evidence of a healthy, strong economy in that they're able to coordinate on a large scale beyond just like keeping the family alive, right? I think that's a great way to measure how successful an, an economy is, is how much it can economize, right? Um, yeah, for me, I would say um, how successful a country is, is determined by how much social m mobility the individuals in that country have. Um, like, if, like if the people in a given country could work harder and get more money and get the reward they deserve. Um, then that, I think that signifies a healthy country. Right. From a, I guess using Marxist terms, class mobility is a uh, very important part of, well, life, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, class consciousness and class mobility, which, well, the Marxist theory of class or the Marxist class theory is Again, very funny parallel. There is something called the Austrian class theory, and it's extraordinarily similar to the Marxist class theory, but the definition of exploitation is slightly different. So, of course, man, I, I really want to get into um, the whole ethics system behind capitalism and private property, but I feel like since we're going down this path, I'll, I'll just hash over it really quickly. So exploitation is more or less ag uh, aggression, initiation of conflict, right? So from an Austrian class standpoint, the loss of value is done through exploitation, is done through directly taking things from people. So this is more or less taxation. So the class that exploits would be the state, the tax collectors, and the producers of value would be the citizens or the actual economic actors, the people who produce. And uh, naturally, the bourgeoisie are the politicians who act for uh, the state. So, or the, yeah, bourgeoisie, those would be the people, the politicians who act for the state. So under this class structure, the whole dynamic of producing value versus taking away value, extracting surplus value, it still is present. It still is present. And I, I believe this is the fact it's agreed on by both political extremes, I think, shows to the uh, relevancy and the accuracy of the theory, right? But the difference is more or less over who constitutes the groups. So we can go over the ideas of exploitation and why I believe uh, the Austrian class theory is more accurate than, uh, than the, or the original Marxist theory of labor exploitation or exploitation of surplus labor value, right? We can go over that, although I think we can kick that down the road a little bit, maybe. No, I think that's a good thing to touch on. I, I actually made a note about it, but I wanted to see if anybody else had anything before I... Started talking. Stone, did you have any response to anything they said before I go? Yeah, I, I will say I, I definitely think you guys 
answered my question. I, I don't know if you really got into Mike's question there, really explaining why you thought capitalism was better than socialism or communism. But I'd also say to kind of give my take on success. So your takes to me sounded like a way to measure a successful economy versus a successful country, which is fine. And I, and I get why you, you would go that route. However, what I, what I meant more is measuring the lives of the citizens. So, you know, to me, homelessness is important. If you have a country that is so strong that people have homes, to me, that's a success. If you have a country so strong that people have access to food fairly easy and there's no actual hunger issues and that food is of good quality, then that's a success. If you have uh, a country that allows enough uh, independent freedom and enough, you know, freedom of your own time to just enjoy life, to go on a vacation, to, you know, play a game with some friends, to, which obviously I like games. I've got about 140 <laughs> board games behind me, but just the free time to uh, commune with your community, your friends, your family without that, you know, impacting you in a negative way. Then to me, that's a success um, to be able to just be who you are and not face like heavy recourse for that is, is a success. You know, I don't want to touch too much on too many things out of the topic. Obviously, I, I think there's some things people shouldn't be. You shouldn't be a Nazi. But if someone is trans, I don't think there should be any reason that they should be afraid to go out in public. They're not going out in public and advocating for genocide of millions of people. They're going out and advocating for themselves and just wanting the right to be who they are. I think that should be safe, and I think that having the freedom to be who you are should be a success of a country. I think um, I get the trade thing, but you know, if, if you can handle everything within your own country and, and meet all of that and your people have healthy, distinguished lives and they're happy, then you've succeeded in my eyes. And so that, that is just all I wanted to say. Go ahead, William. Uh, yeah, I believe that's pretty impactful. Um... Those are all great metrics to look for, for well-being and success, right? But the difficulty I find is just in measuring. Like, how do you actually tell, right? And for the sake of rhetoric, emphasizing those values are very powerful and very important. But again, we're kind of talking about economic systems. So it's, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to really isolate that and focus, especially from uh, Austrian economics, which, again, just works from logical axioms. You can't go really far. You can't like predict, yes, wheat prices will be within the margin of two cents five, five years from now. Like it's very difficult to make any super specific predictions, but you can just make general rules. So I guess from my background of Austrian economics, I don't really go down very specific uh, paths, so to speak. Right? Yeah, but, but ec economic systems such as socialism and capitalism, just measuring them on the economic effects versus the actual real material effects they have on the people that live underneath those systems to me the latter makes more sense that was that was my point yeah so um unless anybody else has anything major i wanted to respond to some of those points so i think that like still like you were saying having your basic needs met is huge and i think that that's a huge measure of success and i think the fact that socialist countries are able to do that like i think a lot of the assumptions that people have especially here in America, about socialist countries are based purely on propaganda, a little bit of racism as well. Um, and I think that, like, 
yeah, they really have been led down a, a just a really long trail of indoctrination and fear mongering. And I think that when you actually look into it, even by Western sources, you can see that like Cuba exports a lot of doctors, especially for a very small and very admittedly impoverished island that's like under constant blockade and threat by the U.S., by the strongest country in the history of the world and the financial capital of the world currently. Um, we have, you know, a couple episodes on exactly that and their successes despite those <laughs> insurmountable obstacles. But also, like, again, with China, like, I would use some measures like the fact that they have fewer people in prison, both per capita and just in sheer numbers. Like, despite having a billion people, like three times the population of the U.S., they have nowhere near the number of people in prison. They don't spend anywhere near as much on the, as on, on the military. Like, no other countries have 800 military bases around the world to maintain that capitalist system. I think that, like, those things speak to the fact that socialist countries don't need to do those things to be able to trade. And again, I will, I will encourage everybody. This is one of my favorite videos is like, I fucking loathe Vouch. Sterling, how often do we talk shit on Vouch? How much do we hate Vouch? Oh, God, I know you're not about to recommend a Vouch video. No, I mean, look up Vouch independently arrives at socialism with Chinese characteristics. Hilarious. Because he, he literally just starts saying like, no, what you would have to do is you'd have to like integrate yourself into the world economic system. You'd have to like start taking the manufacturing capabilities away from like the wealthy countries. And then you'd have to start slowly implementing socialism in your own country and then exporting it to other countries and making trade alliances that would go up against that hegemonic block of trade, as, you know, which is the U.S. And once he realizes it, like, dawns on him, he just, like, stops it there. He's like, oh, wait, I, I, he, like, pretends he's, like, not interested in it. Like, it's really fucking funny. But that's the case that I would make is that, like, I don't think you're wrong in that, like, you can measure economic success, success with, like, GDP and whatever other economic measures you want. But, like, I think, again... China and the fact that they are like doing a Belt and Road Initiative and that like South American countries are like aligning in these financial blocks and everything and starting to actually challenge the U.S. Like the U.S. is just it's not as strong as it once was. And I think that everyone is starting to slowly deal with that kind of realization. And, you know, this whole proxy war against Russia was a big chink in the armor. Uh, backing out of the war in Afghanistan was a big part of that as well. This <laughs> thing they're doing, ramping up war against China with Taiwan. It's like, I don't think that's going to go the way that the U.S. wants as well. I think that's going to be like another, it'll fizzle out probably, or it's be something that's like kind of long and drawn out, but like, it's not going to be some kind of decisive victory where like they free Taiwan in a year. Pelosi booked a flight, Mike. Did you not know that? <laughs> Pelosi flew on a plane, Mike. Yeah. The war is on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got to send you a video of like the, the most recent thing that she said. It was really funny. It was like really stuttery and like, she looked really like fucking robotic, man. It's weird. But uh, yeah, I mean, so the, I guess that's just the case I'm making. It's like if you if you guys are making the case that like economic success is the thing that defines the success of a country, I think that's a really big hurdle to climb. It's like a really tough hill to die on at this point because it sort of relies on like that old assumptions of like trickle down economics. Like if you have a bunch of like wealth in your country that everybody's going to do better. And it's like people here in America have seen that that doesn't fucking work. And you know, I would say that like alienation, not that you can easily measure alienation, but I think the fact that the U.S. has is the only country with all these mass shootings, despite the fact that other countries have guns. Like, I think the right wingers are actually correct about that. Other countries have guns. I don't know if people realize that, but like there are plenty of other countries that have lots of fucking guns. It's not just the U.S. Like we are really not unique, but they still don't have all these mass shootings because I don't think people with basic necessities feel that alienated. And I think that also makes for better markets where you are not dependent on your employer for literally your survival. Like, I think that that forces everyone to be more competitive in a market-oriented way. But go ahead, William, I'm, I'm blabbling. 
Right. So again, the difficulty of drawing economic success to actual personal well-being, that's a very difficult one to draw, but I do believe the uh, line is there. Now, vocalizing that, I kind of hear the extremism in myself, right? It's like, oh God, how far down how, this rabbit hole have you gone to where you think, <laughs> now, now, now you think GDP is tied with success, right? Uh, but I guess that aside, it, I wanted to create a whole ethical framework for capitalism. And I wanted to highlight the whole libertarian ethic that actually defends the ownership of private property and non-conflict. So you mentioned international conflict, and I think this is a decent time to kind of get into that. If, if you don't mind, it might be a while. <laughs> no, go for it. Wonderful. So basically, conflict is defined as two people trying to use the same scarce means for different ends, right? So essentially, if I'm using a stick to spearfish and somebody else wants to use that stick to stoke a fire, right? That's, that's going to be a conflict if, if he acts on it, right? If he comes over, tries to take my stick, that's a conflict. So this basis, this whole idea of taking somebody else's property and then trying to use it for an alternate means, that is pretty much the basis of property rights. And it is this conflict that is objectively immoral or, ob sorry, unethical, objectively unethical. As in, we ought to never initiate aggression upon uh, somebody else. And property right is essentially the ethical statement of when there is a conflict, who ought to be uh, victorious in the conflict, who's in the right and who is aggressing upon the other. So uh, we can approach this from the standpoint of self-ownership. I think that's a good one, right? Immediately just get slavery out of here. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about that. Slavery is not capitalist, right? So, I mean, I would say that it is, but, but I'll, I'll just let yeah. on that one. That's yeah, fine. I know, I know, I knew that. I, I knew that was coming, so I just wanted to get this out there. I, I just really wanted to get this out there. So, self-ownership. Well, first, if to advocate any ethic, you must first propose it, right? And because we're talking about human ethics, we have to propose ethics to other people using our own bodies. So, naturally, to use our own bodies to propose an ethic we affirm that we are not to argue for ethics through violence. So it, it kind of immediately disproves the might makes right thing, right? So that's kind of the basis for self-ownership and for uh, non-aggression, which you heard probably heard of the non-aggression principle, which is kind of like the heart of uh, libertarian ethics. So to extrapolate this, we can think about who is who has property rights and how property rights are made. So Naturally, I guess you could think it's pretty intuitive, right? But the first comer, right? The homesteader, the, uh, the first, the primary appropriator, a primary accumulate. Uh, the Indians. Yeah, like the, the indigenous people, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's no doubt say, That'll that. lead you down like a basically yeah, ending no. the U.S. immediately rabbit hole. Like. <laughs> no, that is, yes, that, that is absolutely the case. The uh, U.S. has committed so many hilarious atrocities. It's, 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 kind, it's kind of scary. Yeah, the, the, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> what the colonization is undoubtedly immoral. Imperialism is undoubtedly uh, unethical. I keep on saying immoral. I mean unethical. Ayn Rand would disagree. <laughs> I, nobody likes nobody likes Ayn Rand. Okay, not okay. Not a single Western philosopher likes Ayn Rand. I mean, the la the last time we did this, like the guys said that they liked Rand. They were like, I think the one guy said he was what? a Randian. A Randian? Ew. I mean, he also got kicked off his own show after it, so. <laughs> Ew, Randian. That's, that's, that sounds funny. Um, Randian. All right. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so 
the, so obviously the first appropriator ought to be the pr property owner, because if you were to say the second appropriator would be the property owner, that would mean that there is no property owner because then it's just the next person takes it. And then this returns back to uh, might makes right, where just a stronger and stronger person keeps on taking it and then it's rightfully theirs, which obviously can't be the case. So here comes to the first appropriator being the rightful property owner. So from this standpoint of non-aggression and the accumulation of natural resources or primary primitive accumulation, I think that's it. Primitive accumulation. That's the Marxist term for it. Yep. So first non-aggression, primitive accumulation, first uh, appropriator, primary appropriator being the rightful owner of uh, natural resources. Then we come to voluntary transaction, right? So the only way you can transfer a property right legally is by the two people agreeing on it. Uh, you cannot uh, coerce property rights because then it just would be theft, right? And of course, this is still the uh, first haver ethic, right? So uh, let me one, one more quick thing, one more quick thing. So, so from, uh, from this point, you can uh, generate money using capital. And this is the whole cycle of capital to money to capital, right? That's the roundaboutness. And that's the uh, theory that Marx had where there comes a point where this becomes problematic. But this is the cycle, right? Capital to money to more capital. And obviously, consumer goods are more or less what's fueling this, right? So, yeah, I think that's more or less the argument from an ethical stand standpoint for the private ownership of uh, production. I'd like to dig into that rabbit hole on the ownership for a second. So you said really only ethical transferring of... Uh of a deed to another person is the only way that a second owner would, would take possession of it. So my first point is, you know, what all constitutes as unethical transference of a property? I mean, for instance, you obviously are against aggression and I'm sure you consider uh, that not only physical, but financial aggression is a real thing too, correct? Fraud? No, financial aggression, such as if uh, if I'm being exploited too hard, I I work hard, but I don't make enough money to maybe loan sharking or. Well, no, I was going yeah, I was going a little further. Say I work for a company that you know there's no minimum wage in my area. I couldn't get a better job, and I'm making you know pennies on the dollar of what I need to survive. So the system itself is financially aggressive to me because it's not correcting any issues that would prevent. A situation such as me killing myself and selling my labor for pennies on the dollar because I, I don't have that ability to take my labor somewhere else. Maybe my family's here. I don't want to leave my family and move to another state. So I, I suffer it out. But eventually the financial pressure gets so burdensome, I don't have a choice. And I sell my home due to this financial pressure to another person and move away from my family to another state. I mean, to me, that's inherently violent. And though I may have willing, willfully sold that home to another person, I did so under financial violence. So I wouldn't consider that violence. Although I would also like to stress that under a capitalist competitive system, such uh, even Marx agrees with this, especially Marx agrees with this, is that workers under capitalism would almost never, if or they would never re receive less than their shoot labor value it's 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 the minimum required to subsist and continue working definitely not mark <laughs> i was gonna ask you william since you had such a a good description of i guess that was like your take on the non-aggression principle right that thing you just kind of read through 
the non-aggression yeah the the basis of non-aggression as through to propose a human ethic right yeah. i was going to ask if you had a similar thing on like the labor theory of value because uh or was it the is it labor theory of value or is it the economic subjective theory of value no the economic calculation problem that's the one that there's other guys mentioned that we never we never follow up with economic calculation problem yeah i don't know if you are familiar with it because i'm not and i was i was literally saying after that episode i was like oh they could bring that up and just clown us because i don't even know what the fuck that is like oh. <laughs> So economic calculation, that's more or less a, a, a practical advocacy of free markets. It's because, so my understanding of the uh, economic calculation problem is that free markets generate price signals, and essentially price signals are a source of information for uh, all economic calculations. And obviously, businesses strive for profit, right? So they want to choose the cheapest possible option to generate the most possible profit. Mm. So what this does is essentially... If they have to build a, a railroad, they have a choice of going around a big mountain or to tunnel through it. They can check the prices of all this. So they have to pay extra railroad to go around it, or they have to pay for a drilling service to go through the tunnel or a tunneling service to go through the, uh, a tunneling service to go through the mountain. So they can calculate which one would generate the more or less profit and then pick one based on that, right? So they can see a drilling service. Drilling is pretty cheap, you know, Elon Musk, boring company. Whoa, 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 right? Let's do drilling. So they will save money doing that. And in doing so, they would realize... It's never going to get done if you hire that guy. Oh, it, <laughs> I don't know. I've only heard of sketchy things about Elon Musk, but I don't know, boring <laughs> company sounds a little funny. So let's, let's go with that, right? Elon Musk pulled it together. He figured out the boring company <laughs> and he's able to drill it really cheap. So then you would pick drilling through the mountain instead of going around it, right? But then say, what if steel is really, really, really cheap right now? Well, then just go around it, right? Because you could, you have the extra, uh, or sorry, steel is cheap enough to offset the extra cost of building right, a railroad. Right, right. And you can only make these decisions using prices as signals. So essentially, it creates efficiency by using these prices. Now that you say that, I actually do remember hearing about the, econo- the ECP, the economic calculation progress, pro- problem, sorry. Um, shortly after we recorded that last debate episode, because of that... So I looked it up again while somebody else was talking, but it's a episode of the, the Multipolarista podcast and Michael Hudson, the economist was on there and he was talking about the Chinese economic model. And it's all very like just timely. It's very contemporary news because he's basically saying that he, he brought up the economic calculation problem and said that that was indeed a problem in the USSR and like previous socialist states, which is that they were trying to, especially under like war communism, when they were regulating the price of goods at a national level, and really having a lot of problems with that. And people were having, there would be shortages in one place and overages in another or whatever. And so that's why he was advocating the Chinese socialist model, which was the markets on a smaller scale and then tight government control of important resources on a national level. So, and, you know, when he was talking about this and actually still, I mean, he's talking about that in the context of the US going through like the crazy inflation, like trying to, san- trying to sanction Russia and having that backfire on us and just <laughs> higher prices for everything and higher prices for everything in Europe as well. It's like, um, yeah, I just think I, I say it a lot, but it's a very easy time to be a socialist right now to like make all these arguments because of like what's going on in current events. I don't know, maybe it'll be harder in another few months. Who knows? Well, from that standpoint, I'd say it'd be really easy to be a capitalist in this point because you wouldn't choose the more expensive option, right? Because <laughs> right now America's trying to sanction Russia because, oh, they're doing a bad. They're, they're invading Ukraine. We can't have that. So we got to like, <laughs> not trade with them. A capitalist wouldn't do that. A capitalist would still trade, right? They're mm-hmm. greedy. They're evil. All they look for is profit. So, I mean, But it's another capitalist and they're, they're competing with those capitalists. 
Okay, so yeah, that's another thing with uh, international conflicts. We can get into that, but international conflicts are like never profitable. <laughs> yeah, I would like to talk about one last thing on the property thing before we move on, which is, you know, capitalists, one of their arguments against communism, especially, is, you know, that this is my home, you're not going to take my home thing. And there's this whole uh, straw man, red herring argument that if the communists took power, they're they're kicking you out of your home, you lose your home, you know, X, Y, Z. That, that's not what communists do. In fact, they're taking the, the argument away from what really happens, which is, yes, the communists would seize property. There's no value in them seizing your home you live in. You need a home. If you don't have a home, you can't work and build the country up. So that's not the goal. The goal would be is what capitalists really take property for, which is not because I want this as my home. They take it because the property is the means of production in a lot of senses. In fact, if, if I'm a capitalist, the main way our most successful businesses operate, like go look at a lot of the chains, even if they franchise it out, they like to keep ownership of the property itself because they hold the property in which the production occurs. Therefore, they have the rights to that production. They set the rules, they set the wages. And what the communists want to do is take that specific property. Because if you take that factory from the capitalist and you give it to the community, well, now the community reaps all of rewards from that. You know, if you've been to any smaller towns where you have a lot of mom and pop shops, you have these businesses that, you know, really do uh, operate with, you know, family and friends. They employ actual people in the community. They, they hire them, they pay them a wage. And when they make the money, then they go and spend that money elsewhere in their community with other mom and pop shops. The problem is that's becoming more and more rare as these franchises move in and they take control of the property as the capitalists take more and more. And, and to, to be clear, Uncle Phil's uh, restaurant, you know, diner down the corner, it's not, that's not capitalism. That's surviving under capitalism. When the franchises, when the true capitalists who come in like money is money and capital are, are two very different things. Capital is power. Capital is the ability to make someone do something for you. Money is simply the tool that the capitalists use for that. So when these franchises come in and they buy up the property and they start uh, taking in a, a lot of the money that otherwise would have went to the community, well, now your profits are going to New York. They're going to Wall Street. They're going to California. They're going to all kinds of places besides your community. And when you export incredible amounts of profit or capital from a community and take that and send it elsewhere, you have hurt that community. And to me, that's violence. It's argumentative that franchises themselves are inherently violent. So I think a, a distinction here is between capital goods and personal goods, possibly. Say yeah. capital goods being. I'm just, I'm just saying, like it, under a truly communist system, they would take the means of production, the the land in which the factories and all resided on. That would become public property. They would make a profit for their community. It, you know, there would be some level of taxation that also, you know, went towards the federal levels. But there would be no capitalists taking 20, 30, 40 percent margins off of every penny that factory produced, so that they could go buy, you know, a fifteenth house or a 600-foot mega yacht. I mean, my, my point is the world does not get better with billionaires, and that's kind of where that leads, is if they get to buy up all of the property that makes the most money and the community no longer has the property that makes the most money, then it increasingly pushes towards that, uh, you know, 
0.1% theory. William, go ahead, but I do want to check in with Michael after you go because I haven't heard from him in a while. I want to see if he has anything. Okay. Sure he's okay. <laughs> so uh, one quick, uh, I guess, what's it called? Not gripe, but like a little uh, poke, I guess, a little, a little jab, is uh, regarding buying yachts and, uh, and extra properties and whatnot, right? Remember, under a capitalist competitive system, more successful businesses are businesses that reinvest more. So, like, billionaires who hoard resources that kind of just hoard gold doubloons and sleep on them, like, uh, was it the McDuck guy, right? Scrooge McDuck, yeah. Scrooge McDuck, yeah. Billionaires who just hoard golden doubloons and, like, swim in them like Scrooge McDuck. Those people aren't going to be competitive in the markets, right? They're just not. Because that money isn't going toward lowering prices, producing better products, towards expanding their brand, all these things, right? Building up communities, actually. A uh, funny story. Uh, Chobani, the CEO of uh, Chobani, yeah, I believe it was Chobani, CEO of Chobani had a TED Talk explaining how he's going against the grain of capitalism by not focusing on profits. But he has the second largest yogurt company on, like, the planet. Sounds like he's lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What I really think he's arguing for is arguing for lower time preference, which is basically reinvesting your money, reinvesting your money and super low time preference as in actually building up the communities that you get labor from. So one thing that he uh, went on the TED talk and said was that he went to like an extremely poor area and like, I don't know, Wisconsin or something. I don't know, just like the middle of nowhere the town where people would work really cheap because they didn't have a lot of better options. Okay, precisely. And he set up a very high-tech factory in there, except nobody in there could work at the factory because one, they're not very like high level of education. They don't know industrial manufacturing of dairy products, right? So how does he fix that? Well, he built a community college in there. So he got those people educated and he got them working for pretty cheap. And this resulted in a massive boon to the economy in the local area, one through education and just capital flooding the area, more jobs, right? That's the classic one, more jobs and more capital in the area. And it resulted in lots of profits for his company because he had lots of people working and he had a whole town just building around his factory, right? Mm -hmm. You can also think of this in like the Wild West times. That's more or less how towns formed. It's just someplace opens. Oh, that sure is a good place. We should set up shop around there, right? And just a lot of business aggregates around this area of productivity and capital. So I don't really think of the establishment of a business as an area as taking from the community, but rather it's the introduction of capital into the community. And real quick again about the franchises and the large corporation taking like fractions of the profits from the community. Again, you could think of them as them just getting paid back for the introduction of capital into the community, right? So naturally, if they're taking on risk, right, they're taking on financial risk, by saying, we're going to introduce millions of dollars worth of capital into this community. We're going to produce many jobs. We're going to produce goods and services and try to sell them for a profit, right? That's risk. They could lose money. And there are many places that they try to open up a McDonald's, but it doesn't go down well, right? So they're taking on risk, naturally. They should be compensated for that. And in the cases of leeching money out of the community, it's I don't think that's really the case so much as they're producing jobs for that community. And they're introducing uh, value to capital. Well, in a lot of these scenarios you describe, I, I, I get your point, and I'm not saying there's not something there, but in a lot of these arguments, you could just do that without having um, 
an ulterior motive, which is to, you know, extract immeasurable amounts of capital from a community. You could just go to a city like you're describing and help build a factory and build schools and educate them to turn them into, you know, a, a better community that could better themselves. And under a centralized socialist system, that's what they do. That's what uh, Castro did. That's what Gaddafi did. I mean, Gaddafi, <laughs> went, Gaddafi went to areas uh, which were completely controlled by foreign investment, pushed them out, rebuilt the factories that a lot of the capitalists burnt down on the way out, rebuilt the factories and gave those to the communities. And those communities flourished. And yes, obviously, under a socialist uh, centralized system, there is a, a bit of there is a measurable amount of capital and, and you know, surplus value that is uh, extracted from that to help run the system that, you know, allows for building these systems in various towns. But that amount compared to an amount of profit that a company needs to make are two very different amounts. It's different to need to pay a federal body in order to enact these things, such as building a factory in a new town and helping build up that community versus doing that. Plus, I need to buy a couple mega yachts. Or, or I'm just saying it. If you were to do exactly what you described, but without it being owned by Chibani and it being owned, owned by that community, that community undoubtedly would have flourished better. And I'm not saying they didn't flourish. It sounds like it was a pretty remarkable event that I think any capitalist should use as an it's example. It's the outlier. That's the exception to the rule. <laughs> and I wanted to check in with Michael, yep, too. Yep. I mean, I'm still here. I, I just wanted to make sure I didn't know if you had anything. And I wanted to make sure I didn't like miss your hand signal or anything. Oh, no, I, I, it's all good. OK, cool. So did you have some more stuff? Because I can I can go as well. Um, but we can move on to the next topic if you want. Sterling, did you have anything? Yeah, I, that, that was kind of just my point. I mean, it <laughs> is just do you think that doing something like that is capitalist exclusive? Is that a trait of a capitalist system or is that something that's capable under a socialist system? I also just wanted to say real quick, like to your point, William, about like these companies, I'm using Walmart as the example, but it's like. I think you could just use Amazon as well. It's like the fact that like people are working these jobs and then still also collecting benefits from the government. It's like, they're not really job providers. Like they're, they're literally just like leeching off the government to pay their employers. And like, that's, that's a common, that's like a fucking media trope at this point. Like even liberals recognize that, that dynamic. Yeah. It's like billionaires with a stack of gold and like uh zero income, zero yeah. income, no taxes. Okay. But um, yeah, so I, I guess I should specify um, the government isn't exactly a private institution and states aren't exactly economically efficient and uh, them influencing markets and redistributing money because uh, remember, the state doesn't produce. It only taxes and redistributes, right? So yeah, the state I mean, doesn't get its money. State-owned it enterprises can absolutely produce things. Yeah, we... we we can get into that state owned enterprises that actually generate profit through voluntary trade. Those can produce, but, or they can de facto produce, right? But they're not established through the means of, uh, through the means of aggregating money, then taking risk, right? A state owned enterprise. Remember the states don't initially have money. Otherwise it would just be a corporation. So the way states make their money is through taxation. And remember, I guess voluntary, voluntary taxes can exist, but in general, this isn't the case. In general, if you don't pay your taxes, you have like early people show up to your front door, right? But um, 
Yeah, so basically I'm saying that states normally don't produce. They make profit through taxation. They can put that funds into uh, nationalized industries and nationalized businesses, and then those can produce. But then that's just siphoning, that's redistributing money, that's taking money from people, then siphoning them into some state venture. Uh, one more thing real quick, one more thing real quick. Uh, regarding whether or not capitalism and socialism, whether or not an entrepreneurship is a capitalist exclusive thing, I think we can both, I think we can agree that in general, capitalism stifles more risk-taking, more entrepreneurship than uh, central planning in most areas. And I believe we've also established, on at least on the case of the small scale, that markets do function. And that, at least for fish production, uh, uh, sardines are pretty darn good, right? But yeah, <laughs> fish production, free markets are pretty good at doing that. And private capital is pretty good at uh, producing these outcomes. So regarding whether or not socialism and capitalism, whether or not entrepreneurship is specific to one, I think there's more entrepreneurship under capitalism. But of course, there is in both. But I think we agree that entrepreneurship is good and that free markets in some areas are good. So I guess we can work from there. So did you have something? Yeah, I, I definitely think capitalists take uh, more financial risk than socialists do. And I think that's largely due to the fact that uh, they take unnecessary risks. I mean, I don't think we need 500 different brands of toothpaste. I don't think I need 500 different versions of the same fucking fast food burger. I don't need 17 different new iPhone plus maxes. Um, capitalists, not only do they create an abundance of unnecessary items, but it's the reason they create it, which is the incentive is a profit, is a profit motive for a very small few people. So when, when like the Chobani went in there and built that factory, they were not going in there for the potential to build a successful factory to up, to bring up a community and help them flourish. That is a great side effect. And I commend them on that, but that wasn't their goal. Chobani didn't wake up and say, man, we really need to build up communities. They needed to make profit and mm. they happened to find a decent way to do it. And I will pat them on the back for that. So that's kind of the difference is, yes, yeah, socialists don't take as many risks or as entrepreneurs in capitalism do, but that's because you don't quite need to. I mean, there's, if you think of how far technology has went like over the last couple hundred years, and then you just look at like the last 20 years, we really haven't done a lot besides make TVs better because that's what we advertise on. Yeah. It's like all, all of our technological advances are in the capitalist nature, it seems like, over these last couple decades. It's just new ways to get you to give someone else money. We're not building new things that really help our community. Like Comcast is out here digging right now, putting a fiber into my neighborhood. I'm super pumped about that. I can't wait to get it. But they're not doing it because they care about me. <laughs> and that's kind of the difference between the socialist and capitalist planning. Yeah, I want to say a few, a few things. Like, I don't think even people living under capitalism think the innovations that we're getting nowadays are great. It's like the innovations you're getting now are like social media. And it's like how to fucking make people hate each other more. How to make this like whole country even more divided. It's like, I don't think the, the capitalist innovations are giving us things that we really want. It's like, I would social love media for, is a real <laughs> can of worms. <laughs> oh, it's a total yeah. cancer. It's terrible. I mean, as and I oh, say, yeah. this is somebody who's on it all the fucking time. Like, um, <laughs> it's just, it is what it is. You know, I would, 
I, I should just move to, to Nicaragua, like like Ramiro was saying, and just like right. <laughs> go dance in the street with some friends and shit. But like, yeah, I just think that uh, I I would love to see like, damn, it, it's it's gonna sound. I, I think that you guys were saying earlier, it's like I think all of capitalism exists under coercion. And again, to get back to like the, the alienation point, it's like that's what the capitalist model is doing to people. And uh, fuck, I think I'm just like losing my point. I'm trying to regain it, and it's not gonna happen. But it, it's Dude, like I am so sleepy right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I mean, we're gonna wrap up some coffee before this, and man, I'm like this close to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like I'm, I'm on my last threads right now, but yeah, we're definitely wrapping it up in half an hour, regardless. But we can wrap it up sooner if you if you guys really want. But I mean, you guys are oh, more no. than I'm more than happy. Let's to go the distance. Let's go the distance. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he can get a third um, cup of coffee, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, yeah, it's just what what it, what it comes down to me is like. You were talking about like um, Locke earlier and talking about like the, or not Locke necessarily, but just the non-aggression principle. And for me, it, it reminds me of, of Don Locke and like his theories. And more I remember less, yeah. hearing in college that like, sorry, what was that? More or less. Yeah, that's yeah. Lockean ethics and libertarian principles or libertarian ethics. They uh, line up a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I remember hearing somewhere that like, this was in like an introductory level of philosophy course, but my professor said that like when you want to attack a philosopher you have to go after their most basic assumptions and then you can dismantle everything else after that and she also said that the only difference between Locke and Marx was the assumption of scarcity or like infinite property and so I think that that's why and I said this to my my friends in my group chat earlier today I was like the dream for capitalists like liberals nowadays are literally deciding to end their bloodline or like buy prepper properties and shit like rather than just admit that capitalism isn't fucking working. Like, they're all just like, oh yeah, I'm still gonna go to work every day, we're still gonna just keep fucking voting, but I'm also, like, literally prepping for the apocalypse or just not having kids because I cannot imagine them having a good future. It's like, really? You guys think this is going all right? Fine. Well, I, I disagree, but whatever. I must be crazy, I guess. But, like, I think that, like, even if you extend that, even the people who are wildly optimistic about the future that their kids are going to live in, they're describing being the bad aliens from Independence Day, where they go into space and just mine planets for resources it's like that's not a good future why don't we just have a different fucking model of production and distribution that actually distributes things democratically and works for everybody and i think that socialism has given us that example and i actually love describing myself it depends on if i'm memeing i'm just calling myself a tanky i'm just the tankiest tank that ever tanked but if i'm actually like trying to have a nuanced argument i tell people that i'm a historical materialist because if you break down what marxism is it is literally just a science of analyzing history analyzing previous cultures, previous examples of government and political economy, and deciding what works best based on objective results, and then adapting whatever works and shedding off whatever doesn't. And I, I put some things in my notepad here because everybody was talking about a bunch of things, but like Sterling mentioned critical support earlier. And it's like, I was thinking of how we were planning on doing an episode on Stalin, which is way overdue because like, he's literally in my profile picture. Like we, we circle jerk about Stalin all the time, but at the same time, we absolutely do not advocate the great man theory of history. We don't worship these people like the cult of personality thing. And we're saving it for probably episode 100. But when we talk about Stalin, it's probably going to be a four hour episode and we are going to fucking rail him for being a fucking rumor. Like I listened to that, um, the Pod Dame America episode with uh, Matt Christman from Chapo and they did like a three hour episode on Stalin, like young Stalin. And I don't, I'd have to read the primary source myself, but like they were making it seem like there was good evidence that he was like a fucking groomer, which is not fucking cool. Like I'll absolutely trash that guy for that. but. At the same time, we can critically support him for like 
saving the Soviet, Soviet Union a bunch of times and like literally saving all his people several times. So it's like beating the fucking Nazis. Like you cannot underrate that, man. Like, <laughs> the world. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's where it comes down to for us. And I think that like when you were giving your, your speech about the non-aggression principle, that's the beef that we had with the other ANCAPs or libertarians or whatever they were the last time we did in episode 61. We said after the fact, it's like every time that these people want to defend capitalism, they have to bring out the Econ 101 book. And I'm talking about how things work in practice. I'm talking about how the U.S. is going nowadays, because it's my position that you can say it's not real capitalism all you want, but the U.S. could not maintain the capitalist empire it has without the 800 military bases and the colonialism and the empire. And whether capitalists like it or not, whether it's very inconvenient for them, which it absolutely is, that is real capitalism. And I think that now the position, that's basically my thing is like, we have turned the tables, like everybody is doing, this is the real capitalism. And I'm like, sorry, bro, it is like socialism is working better. And we're just like in the upside down 1990s. But anybody can respond, go for it. All right. Um, so you guys talked about how capitalism is leading to the destruction of society. Um, Kind of curious. When do you think society will be like destroyed? Because I feel like you guys making these predictions for like hundreds of years that that capitalism success. If that makes sense. Yeah, I no, I definitely do realize the um the fact that like the the nature of people under capitalism. Because I remember even listening to like you listen to like the Dark Side of the Moon. It's funny, and like if you watch some like the interviews, this is like going down a YouTube rabbit hole, but like. They were saying that, like, everybody's talking about, like, the Great Collapse and it never happens, like, and they were writing songs about exactly that. And this is back in, like, the early 70s. So it's like, yeah, people have obviously been saying for a very long time that the Great Collapse that was right around the corner. Um, I would just reference climate science. I mean, that's something that um, people were bringing up even in the Reddit thread that we could devote an entire debate episode to is just talking about the climate science. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the way I understand that basically is that we are headed for some very definite thresholds that we are about to cross um, that will spell pretty much certain doom for humanity. Um, as far as like just food not growing, there's temperatures causing such wild weather events that it's just like, basically the way I picture that is, because I just kind of imagine that humanity would always survive. That's if we survive a nuclear winter. Well, that also, I mean, I think that's another kind of side effect of capitalism is that it's leading us ever closer to nuclear war all the time. And that's actually a main topic of the episode that we just put out today. Um, so I, I don't know if that'll be the, the one that's just before this comes out. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that even in the worst case scenario for climate change, humanity would always survive. It just may be like a very small portion of people and then society would have to get rebuilt in the ashes of that. But I think that's really not a good case for capitalism. If the fact that capitalism created the you know industrial revolution and led to this climate disaster and just a few hundred years when like humans were around for hundreds of thousands of years, not doing that. It's like all the benefits that you're claiming about like capitalism lifted this many people out of poverty and lifted us out of the mud and out of the nomadic primitive tribes that we were or whatever. And it's like, but then at what cost, you know what I mean? Like another thing mm -hmm. I love to tell people is like, go, go Google the words China and at what cost? And you see the Western framing of things. And it's like, well, how about framing capitalism in that same kind of mindset? How about asking, like, at what cost did we make TVs? It's like ending fucking humanity for the most part. Like, I don't know, bro. I don't think it was really worth it. But is it, isn't humanity, like, doomed to end anyways? Because, like... No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there this idea that, like, um, like... To, like as time goes on the sun is expanding 
um, and that and that will heat up the earth to the point where human beings can't live on it anymore. Have you guys Let's heard of that? Let's not become existentialist. <laughs> in a very, very long period of time in which it doesn't seem like we're going to make it to that milestone. Yeah, I mean, dude, like when, it, when people go down that, the space rabbit hole, I still just make the case for socialism because it's like if you look at time capsules from the Soviets in like 1917 or whatever, they literally like buried things saying like, oh, I bet you guys are all like having space societies now that are totally like equal among the sexes and everything. And it's, I don't know, it, it's funny. Um, but I would just reference again, just like the Soviet Union being able to industrialize in a fucking generation from like a bunch of farmland ruled by an emperor to uh, or like a whatever he was, a Tsar to an industrialized nation competing with the US in the space race, you know, while also fighting wars and beating the fucking us like technically won the space race. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think that socialism, I think that capitalists have a hard time making the case that progress happens better amongst a bunch of whole di- like a bunch of different companies all competing with each other, working on parallel technology rather than collective effort without siphoning off a whole bunch of profits at the top, because that's how capitalism works. And I think that you can do it better and more efficiently the other way. Oh man, there's a lot to bite off here. Okay. <laughs> so, we got a while We're ago. Uh, this is a while back. I was just writing down some notes. A long time ago, uh, we were mentioning the happy side effects of capitalist entrepreneurship. And um, I think I think we can reframe a little bit about how we think of capitalist or uh, free market profits as opposed to just like a number, right? It is people voluntarily spending their money toward a good that they value the most at that given moment. Every good that you buy using your money, at that point, you say, this good is worth to me at least this much amount of money. I need that good this much. That's, or I want that good this much. That's capitalism. And all the profits that come from that are literally the seller saying, I value this good less to me than you value that good. And we transfer that good voluntarily, meaning that with each transaction, I get money that I value more than the good and the buyer gets the good that they value more than the money. So looking at that, profits aren't like the loss of value. They aren't any like evil thing, any exploitation. Rather, it is literally the more efficient distribution of resources. If, if I have like a bunch of extra toilet paper and like it's this the beginning of COVID and all my neighbors are like, uh, using plant leaves or something, or, or they grab the cat and they're like, "Oh, here we go again." But like, anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> this guy gets the spirit of the podcast. I like it. Hell yeah, bro. Uh, yeah. Uh, at that point, I can say I can give you this toilet paper for I don't know. A roll. Let's let's say at the store it's a dollar a roll, and then I can give it to you for like a dollar fifty a roll or something like that, right? Yeah, but okay. So this is my my thing, right? Like what I was saying earlier, like every time capitalists defend capitalism, they bring out the book. I'm talking about the real world because in the real yeah, world, so what happens is like you have a disaster, you have like a hurricane in your town. Well, now a bottle of water is ten dollars, and you know a generator is four thousand when it was a hundred dollars the day before. It's like that's actually how capitalism and market incentives and the hotels are unreal. Yeah, that's how the efficiency, quote unquote, in practice works, and. You know, I'm just waiting. I'm really waiting for the people who are singing the praises of Bitcoin because it evades all the regulation, because that's the whole thing, right? Capitalists always want to say that the reason capitalism isn't delivering all these amazing results supposed to deliver in this book, in the Econ 101 books, is because of government regulation. Government always fucking it up, right? And so where are the dudes with like the Bitcoin hospitals that are offering medical 
services cheaper than everywhere else because they're evading regulations. Where are the the Bitcoin banks that people are talking about? Because all I see people doing when they avoid regulations is doing the most despicable shit that's super profitable and like buying drugs. Like I don't because I think we I don't know. It may sound controversial to capitalists to say, but like I think it should be a kind of generally accepted thing that like regulations are subject to the whims of capital more so than they are to the actual voters. It's like if you look at things like the old Princeton studies showing like who gets the results that they're asking for when it comes from the politicians, it's like the graph was unbelievable. It was just like rich people get everything they want as far as policy decisions are concerned and voters get nothing that they absolutely need as far as like healthcare and basic necessities are concerned. And that's the system that we live in. And I just, I'm just waiting for all the things that capitalists describe as far as these efficiencies and these positive results to actually happen because I don't feel like anybody really believes that the government is holding back businesses and causing all these fuck ups um, in the capitalist economy this way. It's like it's not because the businesses are too fucking regulated. It's not because Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are too held down by the government. Like, does anyone actually believe that that's the reason that, like, we're not getting the things we need? Well, so, uh, OK, I'm really sorry to bring back the uh Econ 101 textbook, but this one will be quick, I promise. So uh, among the axioms of Austrian economics, the ones that are just logically necessary, right? You can't go very far with them, but you can determine some things. One of them is that demand curves always slope down. There are no horizontal demand curves. So um, this means that if you sell more of something, you will have a small but a measurable effect on the price of that thing. And this applies on every scale. So Let's approach this from the uh, or let's consider that when thinking about uh, certain redistributions of wealth that are usually done through uh, the state or a government. Right. Let's think about uh, homeless benefits, unemployment benefits, uh, certain stimulus of X community over Y community. Right. Uh, these these injections of funds necessarily uh, increase the amount of those things. This is just by virtue of downward sloping demand curves, right? So think about if you were to give money to people who are uh, jobless, you'll have more jobless people, right? Just pretend pretend I'm like a stupid commie who does not understand basic economics and just tell me what that yeah. looks like in practice. Tell me like what these curves and all these things mean. Tell me like when... Bezos and Musk come in and save communities or save the country with all this excess cash. Like, tell me when Apple finally like does something with all the trillion in cash that is hoarding. That you know, companies. I, I keep t- being told that like billionaires or rich people don't hoard money because it's not profitable to not invest your money. And then Apple is just hoarding tons of fucking cash because they can't find profitable things to invest it in. So like, what does this look like in practice? Because I have practical things, and they involve in stuff that like they involve stuff I cannot say on this podcast for like, but legal reasons. And it's like. They've been done in the past by communist countries and they've worked as far as like lifting people actually out of poverty when they do those things. And so I think that like, yeah, I'm just waiting for like, what's, what does it look like in practice? Tell me, I'm dumb. In, in practice, it means when you give unemployment benefits, it leads to more unemployment. So, yeah, it's like if you, if you uh, so here's something funny, right? And this pertains especially to the quest for uh, uh, racial equality across America is single wives get uh, tax benefits because, well, they're disadvantaged, right? They have a more difficult time raising and uh, having a decent family. So single mothers, not single wives. 
You said single I'm really wives. tired. I it's am fine. really tired. <laughs> but yeah, single mothers. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, single mothers. They're given tax benefits be, uh, in an attempt to uh, create equality, right? But instead, what happens is massive spikes in the amount of single wives. So I don't think that single mothers, gosh, like <laughs> I right. need to, where's that third cup? Okay. St- Sterling said earlier that uh, people voted for the Democrats voted for Trump instead of Trump. So it's all right. <laughs> oh, geez, man. Okay. <laughs> but um, no, I think that. Uh, mistaken? What's that? So oh, what's yeah. That? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that uh, the socialist solution to like whatever, like, I don't think that employment just inherently is a good thing. Because like, if you're saying that, like, giving people unemployment benefits increases unemployment because people are taking the unemployment benefits as opposed to the shitty job that was paying them less or may have been paying them slightly more, but was worse of like just on their mental health. It's like, yeah, that means that like those businesses are shitty and those jobs are shitty. And I don't think that that employment was good. And it's like, if you just take away all the unemployment benefits and now people are working for shit wages under shit conditions, I don't think that's an improvement. And I think that's what capitalists want because it goes back to that thing that I said where they need the coercion and this is what I say to capitalists a lot. It's like one of my favorite arguments when people say like, oh, well, you're always going to have to work. When I say that people should literally just be able to not work and still have their basic necessities met, like everyone, yes. whether, even if they're just a fucking dickhead who refuses to work, like they're just capable and they just refuse. They should still have a basic shit ass apartment, health care and food. Just those three things. I think that's more than enough. And I think that we are beyond the point in society and development of the world where we can guarantee that to everybody um and i think we could also even do it without we just can't have billionaires and do that basically because if you if you do that and have billionaires then you are still going to be exploiting the global south because that surplus has to come from somewhere if it's going to be funneled upwards that way and i think that that is again the coercion the capitalists rely on and when people say that oh well that's just unnatural that's not human nature you, you should always have to work even in the state of nature you would have to work to be able to survive and to eat and everything. And it's like, all you're telling me is that the system you advocate is as good as no system at all. And I don't think that's a good argument. Uh, I just want to piggyback on it. You, that, that's an argument a lot of Marxists say, you know, the whole, you know, each, each man. What, what's the Marx quote? I can't remember. Uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his yes. need. Yeah, from yeah. each according to his ability to each according to their need. That's what it is. Yeah. I, I don't care about that quote. Um, the main reason I don't remember it. <laughs> because I think in a certain civilization that in a, and in Marx's time, perhaps it was more accurate then. But I think we have developed we we literally live in a post scarcity world. We literally can survive and guarantee people the basic necessities. If you want to be a piece of shit like Mike was describing and just sit at home and play Xbox all day and not have a job, that's fine. You will not die. You will have a roof over your head, food, access to your Xbox. But if you want more than that, that's where meritocracy comes in. And, you know, a lot of capitalists don't like to admit it, but socialist systems are incredibly meritocratic. You take the USSR, for example, they have the federal program, the Stakhanovite program, which literally uh, gave you benefits from the federal government, which included uh, access to more vacation time, new employment positions, uh, better homes. Uh, access to different foods that aren't typically available in your community. Like you name it, the, the Stakhanovite system gave incredible benefits to, you know, their most useful laborers. If you just work at the school down the street and you are so good, they sing praises and it makes its way up. You got entered into the Stakhanovite program 
sorry, my mustache hair is getting. <laughs> I finally tracked it down. Um, there are benefits to that. So yes, I, I do believe that people, if they don't want to do shit, they cannot do shit. But if you really want to work hard, then yes, if you get out there and you do something for your community, your community is going to reward you. And I mean, it, back to being kids on the uh, kickball field, the kid who was the best at it was getting picked. He's probably going to be coach. And that's just how humans work. There's no profit involved. <laughs> yeah, like we, we are just going to take care of the best of us until we get so overwhelmed by financial burdens that all we can do is defend ourselves. And that's the problem with capitalism is we are so overburdened that we need capitalism because we have to have the ability to find a way to break through all of our neighbors and outdo them to make more money. But if they weren't also exploited, there wouldn't be that surplus value uh, moving through the system that I could take advantage of. And that's why, what do they call them? Uh, temporarily embarrassed billionaires this is basically what all, all uh, conservatives are. They defend billionaires because they think they really might pull it off. They think they really are that person. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But I'm going to come up with that shit and I'm going to invent something so incredible that I make a billion never have to do shit, but, you know, fly around in space yachts for the rest of my life. And then I bring up an, eth an ethical question of is inventing something, is creating something worth one person getting to live that extraordinary life? I definitely think if you're an inventor and you, you make a creation that benefits your community, you should be rewarded for that. Which should you be Jeff Bezos? Do I think Jeff Bezos is necessary to operate Amazon? Do I think Amazon as a public federal utility would not operate way fucking better and employ people at way better wages than Jeff Bezos, who's concerned about how much money his wife gets in the divorce? I think everything capitalism advocates that it's good at. I'm not disagreeing. It's not good at some of those things, but I can't think of a single thing it's better at then socialism would be good at. I can't think of anything capitalism's better than socialism at. So I'm not saying capitalism's never good at things. I just don't know what it's better at socialism then. Sure. So first off, what you mentioned of a very productive, very skilled uh, laborer getting extra compensation, uh, I think that's just like competitive wages, right? That definitely does exist under capitalism. And if anything, under... Tell my boss. No. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I'm, I'm actually joking. I actually do have a wonderful boss now, and I've, I've had some very bad employment in the past, but um, oh, I am very decently rewarded for my efforts. I will say that. That's, that's wonderful. That's great to hear. Hopefully, capitalism isn't expropriating too much of your surplus labor value, right? But um, yeah, the value of one's labor is measurable. Uh, I guess we're coming back to the economic calculation problem. It is certainly measurable under capitalism, it is literally how much profit you make for the company, right? And if you make a certain amount of money and, well, a different company might be willing to pay you a bit more for it, but you know, they're greedy. So like only one cent more, right? But still each company will be willing to bid up the price a little bit until you're kind of close to the actual value of your labor, right? Under capitalism, the system is kind of built into it. You don't need people to say, oh, this guy's really good. You should, uh, you should, you should give him the benefits, right? And remember, Federal government, where does that money come from? Right. Are, are they. Where does, and where does it go? Even more important. Like, well, I'm saying every dollar produced by the federal government is unethical. 
it is literally stolen. It's taxed by the American federal government. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, did they not have taxes in the Soviet Union? No, they did. But like, I think that you can have ethical governments and unethical governments. And I think that really just comes down to like how democratic they are. Like, so the, the case that I would make is like the U.S. It's like the government exists because people would call for regulation at some point sooner or later. It's like we can we can talk about like the econ one on one parts of it and everything. But I think the the core principle of it is that under capitalism, your government and your, your economy is always going to end up like this. It's just a matter of time. You could heavily regulate it. You could have like the Scandinavian model, which still relies on exploitation of the global south, by the way. Like I don't I'm not, I don't advocate for that model either, because that's not a actual socialist model. That's just like a colonial democratic socialist model. Um, so but I, I think, yeah, it just if you don't make a government that is explicitly anti influence of money and profits and anti just really anti business, like really just holds them at an arm's length and is willing to regulate them. And I really just can't salute China enough for killing billionaires. I just love when they do that. I love when they kill rich people. Like, it's a great fucking thing that I love to see them do. And I just will advocate it as just forever. I will always just, I think that's really, it. you have to explicitly have that in mind when you set up your government. You have to have the democratic principles in place or else you, it, it could take generations. But businesses have that time. They will absolutely lobby politicians for generation after generation. They will play the long game. And those are the five and 10 year plans we get here is to like how to fuck over workers. We don't get five and 10 year plans as to how to build, how to build public transportation in hospitals and low income areas. What'd you get, Sterling? As an example for taxation in the Soviet Union, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, you know, should my taxes go to paving the road that allows me to get into town or building a school, X, Y, Z. Let me go with something a little bit more real world that did occur under the Soviet Union. So I, I don't know if if you own a property as far as like you have a, a front yard, a lawn that you have to mow. Do you, do you have grass you have to upkeep? Is a question. I'm 18. I, I don't. Okay, sorry, own sorry. Oh no. Where are we going with this? You're very intelligent for an 18 year old. If, yeah. if I was as smart as you at your age, I'd be doing. Yeah. I, I'd probably have an even better boss. No, my my boss is fine. Oh. <laughs> um. <laughs> In the Soviet Union, you know, it, here, it, I, I actually do own my home, and I'm right now, I just purchased it, and one of the few things I have not bought at my home is a, a lawnmower, because they're incredibly expensive, and I'm trying to figure out how to justify the purchase of this machine to just once uh, every month or two go out there. I don't, I don't know, I'm new to owning a home, so I'm not even sure how often you do mow your grass. Like once every two weeks, probably. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to justify whether or not it's I, I come from the, I come from a, a suburb, and I'm telling you, every week people go around and mow it. I guarantee you that is not a very efficient way of going it. Come on, private equity. Y'all got one job now. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I'm just trying to justify their purchases. <laughs> so uh, so I, I've been going back and forth with this. The way the Soviet Union tackled uh, things like these, these kind of machines is the government had... Uh, a, a storage of these units in their community and you would basically apply to be on the schedule and it would be dropped off when you needed it. You'd use it and it'd go back. Your t their taxes paid for that. They never had to buy that. And that's even in, that's not just their front yards. That's if they had a farm that they were working, the government dropped off the tractor. They did their work. They needed with the tractor. That tractor would get picked up and dropped off at another farm that needed it. And it also created jobs to upkeep those tractors that the people in the community could do. And that is just such a more brilliant way to do it. In fact, if anyone's listening and you design apps, you don't even need to give me credit or royalties to it. 
design an app that allows me and my neighbors to post things I'm willing to share with each other that we can use in our community. Let me get an app that allows me to borrow my fucking neighbor's lawnmower. I'll give them $15 for the, an hour. Um, and then you can make money off this stupid little thing that you bought a lot for. That's a good idea, isn't it? You're thinking. You're Craigslist. Like, Dude, it's Airbnb for everybody. Craigslist, right? That's Craigslist, right? Well, it's even, I mean, so somebody definitely could make an Airbnb for every possession in your home. And it would be worse under capitalism because they're going to have to suck up their profit all the way up to the top. But it's like, yeah, yeah, it would be great if we just had some socialist, I don't know, community lawnmowers that everybody could share. And then you just have one for a whole block of housing instead of the waste and the inefficiency of having one for every house. (laughs) Right. So let's go over that one more time. Remember, the ethics of libertarianism aren't against sharing. It's just that. But people don't. Somebody the incentives are. The incentives are against. Right. The incentives may be. But that doesn't yeah, bar. Definitely right? are, like. Remember, so remember, so private ownership doesn't stop people from creating democratic co-ops. REI, for example, functions quite well under capitalism. Yeah, so, I did like, have a point to this, uh, but I will let you finish if you have more to say. They should charge me a lot of interest on my credit card with them. I'll tell you. That. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't bought stuff. Um, stuff expensive, man. I, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt up, you guys, but I gotta go right now. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Michael, did you have anything you wanted to plug or anything? Any social media you want to like advertise? Um, no, not. <laughs> no, it's fine. Not everybody has a platform. It's fine. But thank you for joining us, man. And you're welcome back anytime. You you, you can you have me on the Discord. Keep in touch. All right. Thanks for having me Later. on. Appreciate it. Yeah, have a have a good day. Um. So I would say to that point, basically, like um, what was I going to say? The uh, fuck. Oh yeah. So the example I like to use is I think it was Puma. Um, or some sneaker company, basically, like they looked into making ethically produced sneakers and they found that they just couldn't do it. Like they literally could not. They could not ethically source all their materials or all their labor um, and do that and actually have like a shoe that they could produce profitably for a reasonable price. And so that is my thing. Like, yeah, you definitely can make a co-op. And I've been to co-op like little grocery stores, but they are always tiny little mom and pop enterprises and everything. They can only expand to a certain. Yeah, they are really barely scraping by. And that's because at a certain point, you have to do something unethical if you want to make the big profit, if you want to actually expand your business. And even according to just basic capitalist principles, if you ask business owners, if their business isn't expanding, their business is failing. That's like a core principle of just businesses under capitalism. You have to constantly be expanding and growing. And so I would say that, that again, it just, like I said, if you don't set out with the, the ethics and the, the explicit intent to keep profits from being the main incentive of everything, then you will end up here. And it just is a matter of time. I also would like to start wrapping it up. But uh, I mean, if you have any like final thoughts and stuff you want to say, because we, we definitely should wrap it up soon. Man, there's so much stuff to cover. Honestly, <laughs> I, I might take up that offer of coming back a different day because there's Absolutely. so much stuff I've written down. Um, so I guess just to quickly hash over a bunch of things, we're not going to get our man, there, there's so no. much stuff. But uh, for cases of uh, private societies that have resulted in some level of decent outcomes is uh, David Friedman actually did a bunch of work about this. Yes, that Friedman, uh, mm. David Friedman, he, um, he did work on certain law systems in different uh, societies. And a notable one was the Icelandic Commonwealth, I believe. And this one, it wasn't quite a private law system, but it had private courts and private law enforcement. So Essentially, there was a book of laws that the government at the time had established. And then to actually 
well, there was only tort law. There was only, uh, I think that would count as a civil law. And essentially what would work is you have to pay the court to do the whole court system, do the, do the whole magic. And then you'd have to pay somebody else to enforce it. Any potential downsides to that? <laughs> oh, well, there are many, there are a few potential downsides, obviously, is that poor people can't do it, right? But as it turns out, it is much, much, much cheaper to go through the court system than it is to have a poor guy with a knife chasing you in, until like the end of days. Right? So, <laughs> as it turns out, avoiding conflict through courts is more profitable than uh, resolving conflict through like knives and swords. So yeah. many people did go through the court system and many verdicts were uh, attained. And as it turns out, the rate of homicide in, in the Icelandic Commonwealth was more or less equivalent to the U.S. today. And funnily enough, this was at the end of the Icelandic Commonwealth to where they said that the, there was so much crime and so much murder in the streets that they had that they voluntarily actually um, got a neighboring feudal nation, I believe, a feudal state. They got a, near, a neighboring feudal state like, guys, come on, we can't deal with this anymore. Right. That was more or less how the Icelandic Commonwealth ended through voluntarily thought, nationalizing, which I thought this a, was supposed to be a success story of like privately run laws like. Right, it is, but it's a very high standard left by private laws. And again, remember, the Icelandic Commonwealth isn't is, isn't astonishingly big, so not many people had to, yeah, like say, oh, y'all, y'all, y'all want to like take over this land? Okay, listen, like, yeah. I guess you can, right? Like the point is, is that during the Icelandic Commonwealth, during the private law system, their rate of murder was more or less the same as the U.S. today. So I, I believe that there are positive outcomes that come from using the uh, market prices, price signals. I don't think the U.S. has a good murder rate, though. I think the U.S. has a bad murder rate, doesn't it? Like, not good. Yeah, it's not, it's not that good compared to, like, Europe and whatnot, but it's still, I mean, this is modern times. I, I'm fine living in U.S. I, I don't feel afraid when I walk down the street, right? Compare that to many there's, other places. There are in, people who do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's certainly people you who probably do, live in compare this, this to... Compare this to other... Uh, you live in the suburbs. We live in the suburbs. Like, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, downtown, I would be a bit more afraid, right? But um, I'm going to try and wrap it up here. Uh, obviously, like you okay. said, there's no way we're going to touch on any major points in the last like wrap-up here. Uh, I don't know if we've changed anybody's minds. I don't think... I, I never go into this even with the goal of changing anyone's minds who comes on the show. It's always just, you know, possibly swaying some listeners who may be on the fence or whatever. And overall, my goal with this is like, uh, like William, I'm much less trolly than I was on Reddit, right? I told you it was going to be chill. We, we were pretty chill, right? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I, I'm very happy to hear. I'm very happy to have this discussion that is uh, very different from the Reddit post. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I fucking, I fucking hate redditors, man. I hate redditors so much, mostly because I am a redditor myself, and I just hate certain aspects <laughs> about redditors that I also try to remove from my own personality as much as possible. But anyway, so yeah, um, you are more than welcome back if you want to do this again. I'm going to try and continue to cycle through more of those guys who responded to the post because I think this actually is fairly productive. Like, I don't know. I mean, I you probably were. Yeah, I mean, this was great. You were very cordial. Um, I like being able to just have these conversations where everybody gets a chance to speak and nobody feels like we're yelling at each other. And yeah, I think this is fun. But uh, if you have anything you want to advertise or plug, go for it. Otherwise, just thanks for coming on. Can I say one thing? What the hell did that other guy mean? He's, uh, what, what did he I say? He. He was a libertarian or he was a capitalist that yeah. believed in more regulation. What do you mean? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I was like, I I don't know. I've never heard a capitalist say what we need is more regulation. Oh, no, yeah. I think a lot of capitalists are taking that position even nowadays because they're starting to really? realize that the, the trickle down stuff and like the hardcore libertarianism stuff 
kind of rubs people the wrong way and they realize it just leads to fucking neo-feudalism. So I think a lot of even capitalists are starting to temper their isn't that just your move to socialism? Like, yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you, you got to take the extremes or else you're just caught up under the... Yeah, just I think caught up under, Oh, you're just transitioning to my side, you know? I think that a lot of people who are used to espousing capitalism are moving in that direction and they just are scared of socialism because of a lot of anti-communist propaganda and they just don't understand Sterling. They don't get it that, like, you have to just go full hog or else you just end up back here. It just takes some time. I bet that dude's in the DSA. That's what it is. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, well, did, I, I did ask you. Did you did you have anything that you wanted to plug? Oh no, no. Oh, okay, cool. the I, 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 I used to make YouTube videos like a couple of years ago, but like squeaky ass preteen making Roblox videos. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that'll be real appealing to uh, have all well, those now, videos. Uh, well, now you got the <laughs> smooth voice. <laughs> um, but no, he had asked what the DSA is. That's the Democratic Socialist of America, which is like the organization that uh, AOC and Bernie came out of. I don't know if Bernie yeah. was actually mm-hmm. ever in the DSA, but they... Uh, they love him. Them. Anyway, they're just this little sub-chapter of rad libs that uh, consider themselves not a part of the DNC, though the DNC is their biggest donor. And anytime the DNC tells them to do something, they're all of a sudden all in unity with, you know, voting for Biden at XYZ, so... No, there, there are a bunch of rad libs who are who call themselves democratic socialists, quote unquote, which I'll let everyone know is not a thing. Uh, uh, that, that's called capitalist simp. That is, <laughs> I want to cosplay being a socialist, but I'm just afraid my parents will find out. <laughs> <laughs> afraid the parents will find out. That's great. All right, cool. Well, let's wrap it up there, gentlemen. I'm not even going to bother with the plugs. I think I'm just, uh, I got to go to the bathroom really bad. But thank you again, William. I really appreciate you doing this. We'll do this again sometime. And uh, plenty yeah, more you. debate episodes to come up. Thanks again. Take care, everyone. Yeah, thank you both. Great time.